Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On today's show, Joe Biden takes new action to fight gun crime. The Trump family may soon face accountability for a bunch of other crimes. And the Atlantic's Mark Leibovich is here to talk about how official Washington has changed since the last time he skewered the city in his New York Times bestseller, This Town. But first, check out this week's Offline, where I talked to Twitter co-founder and former CEO Ev Williams about the platform's early years, what went wrong, how to fix it, what the fuck's going on with Elon Musk, and whether Donald Trump should get a second chance. Also, check out the latest episode of America Dissected, where co-founder and executive director of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, Malik Yakini joins Abdul to discuss food insecurity, the consequences of the way we produce food, and how this shapes who gets healthy, accessible, affordable food and who doesn't. New episodes of Offline drop every Sunday, and America Dissected drops every Tuesday. All right, let's get to the news. President Biden took action to fight the rising epidemic of gun violence today by announcing new regulations on ghost guns, weapons that are assembled from parts you order online, and nominating Steve Dettelbach, a former U.S. attorney from Ohio, to run the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, which hasn't had a director since 2015. Here's Biden at the White House today speaking about the new actions. The NRA called this rule I'm about to announce extreme. (laughs) Extreme. But let me ask you, is it extreme to protect police officers, extreme to protect our children, extreme to keep guns out of the hands of people who couldn't even pass a background check? Look, the idea that someone on a terrorist list could purchase one of these guns is extreme. It isn't extreme, just basic common sense. So, Tommy, there was a a story in Politico just Friday about how gun control advocates, uh, among them Senator Chris Murphy, uh, have been frustrated with the Biden administration for not doing more on the issue. How big of a deal are these steps? uh, And is there anything else left for Biden to do on guns without Congress? I mean, I I suspect that even the Biden team and the Biden White House would say that in the uh, this is a small step in the broader effort to reduce gun violence in this country and to get guns off the streets. But in terms of what the Chris Murphy wish list was, I mean, he got a new ATF nominee. He got regulations to crack down on ghost guns. It sounds like some outside activists want the issue of gun violence to be handled by some sort of czar, some sort of leader of a task force inside the White House and not handled through the Domestic Policy Council. But so, you know, two out of three, uh, Parts of that wish list were handled today, seemingly. Yeah, and it does seem like, again, legislation is going to be the most meaningful action we can take and can't pass legislation without either 60 Democratic votes or 51 Democratic senators who are willing to get rid of the filibuster. So there we are again, no matter how much the Biden administration talks about it, fights, does whatever. Yeah, that's right. You hit the nail on the head there. (laughs) That's it. <laughs> I, it's my Chris. Even Chris Murphy himself said that he was on the fence about whether or not a kind of coordinator type position was needed in the White House for a while, and now thinks it's necessary. But it is like one of those conversations you have a million times, which is like, oh, there needs to be a, a czar for this and a czar for that. I don't know what these czars are supposed to be doing. Czars are helpful. They bring focus to an issue. Yeah. They help with organization stuff. But again, it is a pretty small step. Yeah, um, I'm not against czar. No. Of course. Uh, we've talked before about how crime is is one of the big issues Republicans will be running on in the midterms. It's also one of the top issues on voters' minds. Um, Love it. Do you think Democrats should respond by talking about 
common sense gun control and hitting Republicans for blocking any action to reduce gun violence? No, I think cowering in fear of the issue and trying to change the subject has been going really well. Yeah, look, we have to talk about it. I think that Republicans have this giant megaphone where they've been telling a basically false story that this is like a Biden crime wave or it's a Democratic city crime wave. Neither of those statements is true. Gun violence began rising and crime began rising during the pandemic. Uh uh, gun violence and, and deaths are, are just as prevalent in red states as they are in blue cities. In fact, it, you are much more likely uh, to be murdered if you live in uh, the reddest of red states than in the bluest of blue states. So I think we have to talk about it. We have to make an argument. We have to make an argument about guns. We have to make an argument about um, public safety and do it on our own terms. Yeah. Yeah. Murder rates were an average of 40 percent higher in 2020 in the 25 states that Trump carried in the last election. Tell uh, me one other, sorry, one other, and just one other thing I would add to is I, I do think, uh, you know, we don't talk enough about guns and the roles they play in suicide. And I do think that's a place where, again, talking about the hopelessness a lot of people have felt, especially during the pandemic and after, and making that a big part of this conversation is really important too. You know, gun violence is often, I think we focus on some of the most egregious and violent mass shootings. Those are terrible. They are a, a scourge on our society. They are a rotation of a failure on every possible level. But at the same time, the most likely way a person is going to die uh, with a gun, it is by their own doing. And I think that sometimes is lost as well. Tommy, what do you think about the politics of this issue? I saw, you know, Chuck Grassley put out a statement as soon as Biden uh, had this announcement today saying, you know, it's not it's not guns that are the problem. It's the uh, defunding the police and the, and the Biden crime wave that are hitting all these cities. You know, what do, what do you think Democrats should uh, how, how should respond to this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've seen all kinds of evidence that um, Republicans are going to run on crime. I mean, we're even seeing it here in liberal Los Angeles, where the mayoral race is currently focused on crime and murder rates in the city and a whole set of associated issues. So, yeah, I mean, I would like to see Democrats go on offense on the issue. We just can't be constantly explaining what we are not for. We have to talk about what we would do to make people safer. If you look at 2021 Pew polling, 53% of Americans think gun laws should be stricter than they currently are. Um, you can take smaller slices of the gun issue, like support for expanded background checks, uh, support for banning high-capacity magazines or banning assault rifles, and get even bigger uh, majorities in support of those issues. And there are two policies in that Pew poll that Republicans support, uh, a majority of Republicans support. One is preventing those with mental illnesses from buying guns. And the second is subjecting private gun sales and gun show sales to background checks. So the point is, you can find ways to make this a wedge issue that puts Republicans on the defensive and that makes them own the increase in violent crime, because obviously people wouldn't be getting shot as often if their streets weren't flooded with guns. It's a huge problem. We've known this for a long time. The um, There was this woman who wrote an article um, called uh, How to Murder Your Husband, and then she... Uh, is currently on trial for murdering her husband. Uh, but one of the steps she took was trying to make a ghost gun so that the gun couldn't be traceable. Unfortunately, she did order it on eBay, uh, which sort of back, backfired ironically, no pun intended, on her. Uh, but she did claim she just bought that for research. Oh, my God. I mean, I don't know where, Republic I don't know where Republicans are on this <laughs> ghost gun topic. issue, but it, it feels like you could put together a pretty scary ad about uh, how you know a terrorist could assemble a ghost gun while Republican member... Jim Jordan. I don't know who opposed it. I mean, that that feels like a, a pretty easy way to make this, you know, hit so, home for again, people. Again, this regulation that, that, that Biden announced today 
to go back to Lovett's anecdote, um, would make, in case you weren't stupid enough to buy your ghost gun on eBay, they would make this traceable. This is what Republicans are against. S- purely making the purchase of ghost guns traceable. I mean, look, I, th- I think it's very easy for Democrats to say at a time when gun crime is on the rise, Republicans want to make it easier for you to get guns. It's for they hunting, don't, John. They don't want to hold bad cops accountable, you don't want and they the don't co- want to give good cops the support they need to keep our community safe. Right? You and don't look, want these deer knowing where this gun is from. And Democrats in a bunch of races in 2020 made this point even as the debate around defunding the police was going on. Raphael Warnock accused his opponent in that race in Georgia of, so you're the one who actually voted to defund the police. I want to hold bad cops accountable. I want to give good cops the funding they need. And by the way, you're going to make it easier for murderers to get guns. Like It's a pretty simple message for Democrats, I think. Um, just one other, one other fact, which is um, uh, she also tried to collect on at least 10 insurance policies. <laughs> Um, that seems just, like a lot. I didn't think she I mean, did a good job. Go for like two. Is it just me? Or does ATF seem to be one of those old timey agencies that just has a weird basket of issues like alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and explosives? Like how how do they go together? Yeah. Other than yeah. don't do all of that at the same time. The, the original name of the agency was called uh, the Don't Threaten Us with a Good Time Agency. <laughs> 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 I was going to say, yeah, it started off as vices and then they added explosives. And I'm like, yeah. oh, well. All right. Speaking of crime, uh, the New York Times reported over the weekend that the January 6th committee has concluded that they have enough evidence to make a criminal referral to the Justice Department for Donald Trump's role in obstructing the certification of the 2020 presidential election. The only catch? Some members and staff are reportedly reluctant to send a referral because it may look too political. And they also argue that a referral will ultimately have no bearing on whether Merrick Garland decides to charge Trump. Meanwhile, two other January 6th developments we learned about over the last few days. Uh, Stop the Steal organizer Ali Alexander has agreed to cooperate with the Justice Department's criminal investigation into January 6th. And the committee has a text from Don Jr. to Mark Meadows two days after the election that says, quote, It's very simple. We have multiple paths. We control them all. We either have a vote we control and we win, or it gets kicked to Congress on January 6th. All right, so let's start with the 1-6 committee. Does the reluctance of some committee members to send a criminal referral make any sense, substantively or politically? Love it. You want to take this one? Yeah, I'll make three points on this. Uh, Point point number one, uh, hey, stop thinking so hard. (laughs) And uh, stop, stop assuming the context of Trump's criminality. If this was just a normal committee that was doing its investigation and over the course of its work, it uncovered crimes, it would say, oh, oh my goodness, we've discovered crimes here. In our work of trying to find out what happened in some industry or some, some part of the government, we've uncovered some issue that leads to us to believe there are crimes here. We better tell the Department of Justice because that's our responsibility. That's it. It's as simple as that. Two, Stop worrying so much about what people who act entirely in bad faith will do when you tell the truth. Stop worrying so much about that. Legitimacy isn't something bestowed by God from above, and it's not going to be given to you by Fox News. Legitimacy is something you create by your conduct. You get it, or you get part- from David Gergen in agreement. Or you, sure, mm, or you can you maybe get some in agreement point. with a cup That's of coffee. Correct. That's yes, correct. David um, Gergen on the morning Joe set with the legitimacy. He will give you legitimacy, uh, and that's it. I'll just make two points. I, I will add one, which is. One way to ensure that the press will frame a criminal referral as politically motivated is telling the press that you're worried a criminal referral will be framed as politically motivated. Shut the fuck up. Stop talking to the reporters. I remembered my third point. 
hey, you know what's a great way to totally fuck up how all your information will be received? Introduce the idea that the most important question is whether or not you include a criminal referral. Just lay it all out there. Whether you do the referral or not is ultimately a sideshow. The most important thing are the facts and the information you'll be sharing with the country, especially if if some of it is new, and apparently some of it will be new. Why introduce this whole debate about will they or won't they on a criminal referral? That was the third point. Also, just so obviously Trump and his allies are going to politicize whatever you do or say anyway. Of course. So stop thinking so hard. If you find evidence of a crime, send a referral, make the case in a way that is concise and lay it out in a letter or, or however you want to do it. Um, the weird thing about this whole issue is that apparently the January 6th committee is mad that only one of their four contempt referrals to the Department of Justice have been charged, the Steve Bannon uh, contempt referral. So they're mad at DOJ for not acting, but then worried about sending them a letter asking them to act. It makes no sense. I'd also just like to use this moment to point out, again, that Stephen Miller uh, sued to block the committee from gaining access to his phone records because he's still on his family plan. And he said it was an invasion of their privacy. I just think that is endlessly funny. Thank you for bringing that up because that 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 news was a couple weeks old and we have not talked about that on this podcast yet, which is the family plan. Shame on us. Shame (laughs) on us. Um, You know, we should say on this story. So the only Congress person who's gone on the record as being sort of wishy washy in this is is Zoe Lofgren, um, a a Democrat on the committee uh, representative from California. Liz Cheney was asked about this story over the weekend and she said there is no disagreement on the committee and then she also said by the way it's absolutely clear that trump and a number of people around him knew what they were doing was unlawful and they did it anyway so that's what cheney's saying and even in the even in the time space that explored this question about this debate inside the committee a bunch of the members said we haven't even talked about this yet we haven't even they haven't even sat around a table and had this conversation yet so this all felt like every this got a little more public <laughs> Too soon, in a really strange don't, way. Don't return the calls. Reporter calls you. Don't return the calls. Don't return the email. John, we're journalists now. And I don't appreciate that. All right. Uh, light is the best disinfectant. Well, democracy dies in the dark, John. Tommy, how big of a deal do you think the uh, Ali Alexander and Don Jr. stories are? Hard to tell. So with with Ali Alexander, I mean, he has told investigators that he communicated with some House Republicans. I think we knew about this because they talked about it on live streams and things. But it's like Paul Gosar, Mo Brooks, Andy Biggs. Arizona represented there. Uh, And he also communicated with Kimberly Guilfoyle. But I think the bigger question is he handed over thousands of records and sat for hours of testimony. Depends on what he said. The Don Jr. piece of this is particularly amazing. I mean, the texts from Don Jr. were sent uh, on November 5th. They showed that he was focused on overturning the election before the votes were even counted, before the networks had called the election for Joe Biden. Don's lawyer, John Jr.'s lawyer is saying, look, he was just forwarding along an email, classic case of just forwarding along the coup (laughs) plan without reading it. But the message from Don that preceded the foreword said, quote, this is what we need to do. Please read it and please get it to everyone that needs to see it because I'm not sure we're doing it. So, you know, not a lot of wiggle room there for Don. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, like the the president idiot son is texting the White House chief of staff all this stuff. He's also saying fire Fauci, fire the FBI director, put Rick Grinnell, the the Twitter troll that became head of the uh, nation's intelligence community in charge of the FBI, name a special prosecutor. So I don't know. Trump's kids are like deep in this shit. And it's pretty disturbing. I I will say the same day that Don Jr. um, sent those texts to Meadows, he tweeted that the 2024 GOP hopefuls weren't doing enough to help Trump steal the election. <laughs> so, Which I believe again, also again, it was all happening in the open. It was, it was all, all happening, happening in the, in the open. open. I would say two points about this. Uh, one, 
Mark Meadows, his he must just seize up every time he gets a fucking text. <laughs> his texts are terrible. That's what we've learned. He's terrible text. Terrible text. Terrible text. Two, yeah, Don Jr.'s lawyer uh, pushed back, as Tommy said, by saying he was just forwarding on the plan. And I love that. Like, yeah, man. We don't think Don Jr. came up with the fucking plan. We don't think he's ever come up. Yeah, he came up with the legal framework for a coup. Yeah, we know him and Eric. Yeah, we, we know he didn't crack it. We know that someone else is giving him the information. Doesn't not exculpatory. Still a crime. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. We were also reminded this weekend that the Trump family's corruption extends well beyond stealing elections. Uh, The New York Times reports that six months after leaving the White House, our old pal Jared Kushner got himself a $2 billion investment from the Saudi royal family's sovereign wealth fund. Despite objections from those fund's advisors, they were ultimately then overruled by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman himself. Tommy, Jared Kushner, Saudi Arabia. This, is, this story is just right in your wheelhouse. <laughs> you want to talk about why this might uh, present a bit of an ethical issue? Yeah, I just want to walk everybody through this for one second. So... Remember that Jared Kushner got got to the White House and decided that he was going to become the shadow secretary of state, despite having no experience doing anything in foreign policy or really anything else in life. He, he had a failed real estate business and a failed magazine. The Saudis, it's been reported extensively, cultivated relationship with Jared before Trump even took office because they knew he was fucking clueless and he was transactional. There are leaked Saudi internal documents that talk about this. So Jared becomes buddies with Mohammed bin Salman currently the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, but he wasn't then. And they were reportedly like WhatsApping each other, calling each other. They were thick as thieves. And Jared wouldn't report out any of this to the State Department or the NSC. And Jared even helped Mohammed bin Salman get elevated in the Saudi system. He got him a lunch with Trump. He treated him like a head of state when he wasn't. And then in 2018, when the Saudi government was caught dead to rights for ordering the murder and dismemberment of a journalist named Jamal Khashoggi in their Saudi consulate in Turkey, Jared helped MBS deflect blame, even though he clearly ordered the assassination. So Trump at the time even put out a statement that smeared Jamal Khashoggi after he had been murdered by the Saudi government and defended the Saudis. So Jared was their biggest, Jared was their guy in the White House. It was obvious for four straight years. And then Donald Trump himself went from attacking the Saudis before he got into office to doing everything they wanted, including uh, shoving through billion dollar arms sales to Saudi Arabia, even when Congress tried to block them. So then what happens six months after leaving the White House, Jared gets a two billion dollar investment from a fund controlled by the crown prince, despite the fact that the fund's oversight board had huge issues with it. They, They cited his inexperience. They cited the fact that the kingdom would be responsible for the bulk of the investment into this fund. 
that due diligence on the firm's operations found them, quote, unsatisfactory in all aspects, that the fees were too high, that Jared Kushner created a public relations risk for the government of Saudi Arabia. <laughs> Imagine that one hanging over your head. And we also know that Mohammed bin Salman also gave a $1 billion investment to Steve Mnuchin, the former treasury secretary, who actually like knows what he's doing in this space. Jared Kushner has never worked in private equity. Again, he bought a building in Manhattan for $1.8 billion right before the financial crisis and nearly he lost ran money on New York real estate into the ground. <laughs> but Mnuchin's firm got a 1% management fee and Jared's firm got a 1.25% asset management fee. So that means Jared's making $25 million per year just by holding on to this $2 billion from the Saudis for nothing. This is the most brazen corruption I have ever seen in my life. A $2 billion kickback for covering up a murder for a, a Saudi prince who is a homicidal maniac who chops up journalists with a bone saw. That's Jared Kushner. It smells fishy to me. I love it. Yeah, just at the meeting when they're like, um, hey, we looked at these financials. They don't make any sense. He's a fucking moron who has no experience in this space. And also, we'd be the biggest money in this thing. We'd be taking all the risk. We don't really see why you want to do it. He's like, oh, it's a bribe. We yeah, got to do it. We gotta do it. I said I would do it, so we got to do it. Hey, what do you guys <laughs> want to do later? You guys want to uh, ride around in Maybach's, maybe kill a couple of journalists? They are. By the way, Jared said he was going to raise $7 billion. So far, he's raised two point five. Apparently, it's all from overseas. $2 billion of that is from... The Saudis. Four years in the White House, Jared spent setting up this deal. That was the whole game. Unfucking real. And they're out there talking about fucking Hunter Biden. That's yeah, what they were talking about. Like, uh, Jared Kushner doing this, Don Jr.'s forwarding coup plans. I'm not a, got I'm not Jared a lawyer. Kushner, uh, you know. <laughs> Look, we know that I'm not a lawyer. All right. That's mm -hmm. something we all know. So I'd like, but I think there are lawyers. You know, they work for Merrick Garland. There's somebody looking at this. Maybe when Merrick Garland gets done uh, delicately putting the final touches on the indictment you know puts the put, get, he's writing the, it in calligraphy does melts the wax and puts the feather in the wax and then stamps it with mm -hmm. the M mg yeah it's important. Uh, and then sends it off with a crow when he finishes with that take a look at this take a look look at this active corruption new york times Ongoing. is just crushing it with these stories they have the, the kushner story yeah. the <laughs> look the new york times the investigative section of new york times is at war is the is is fighting to save our democracy from its op-ed page that's the fucking situation <laughs> now you might think that all of this uh trump family crime and corruption might send republican leaders searching for a new standard bearer in 2024 <laughs> but if republican voters do nominate trump again the party will be right behind them here's mitch mcconnell's latest response to axios's jonathan swan's question about supporting trump and drawing moral red lines help me understand this I watched your speech last year in February on the Senate floor after the second impeachment vote on Donald mm -hmm. Trump. And it was an extraordinary speech. Mm -hmm. You spoke very powerfully against the most powerful figure in your party, the, the president. Um, and you said Donald Trump's actions preceding the January 6th insurrection were a quote, disgraceful dereliction of duty. And that he was practically and morally responsible, morally responsible, your words for provoking the events of that day. How do you go from saying that to two weeks later saying you'd absolutely support Donald Trump if he's the Republican nominee in 2024? Well, as a Republican leader of the Senate, it should not be a front page headline that I will re support the Republican nominee for president. After you've said that about him, I think it's astonishing. I, I think I have an obligation to support the, the nominee of my, of my party. I'm sure you could find so moral, some. So moral red lines, where do you draw them? Um, 
I'm perfectly comfortable with the way I have conducted my political career, and uh, I'd be happy to respond to any specificity you want to apply to the term, what was it? Moral red lines. Moral red line. Yeah. Well, let me give I'm you- very comfortable with my moral red line. Now, there's someone who is not too concerned with political appearances. <laughs> it's incredible. It's like, oh, what a ridiculous question. I'll put the con- I'll put the country after the party. I'll put the party before the country. What are we doing here? What, you I'm ask surprised me another you just way? didn't say moral red lines. I do not have morality. I've never heard the term. What's this immorality? What is that? I don't, what? No. Uh, he hates me. He says he wants me to be removed from office, but then I'll support him because I don't care. I don't have any ego in this. I'm a shameless creature. Tommy, do you have anything to say about this? I just wanted to play that clip. That's it. That's really why I just wanted to bring this story up. That was in. That was crazy. Shout out to Jonathan Swan mm-hmm. for doing a great interview. Yes, it, the br- the brilliant part of the interview w- was getting that creep on a stage where he couldn't just walk away, and he had to. You could repeat your question at him and ask him over and over and, and do follow ups. Um, I do want to say to the American media, shame on you. We had to import an Australian man to ask our lawmakers <laughs> tough questions. Shame on you. Yeah, he's taking he's taking jobs that Americans used to do. <laughs> Can we get a Southern accent ripping Mitch McConnell a new asshole? What about a I Boston lo- accent? I love Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan's one, fantastic. He is fantastic, fantastic in this interview. And you know what else? What else is amazing about it? And it's like, it's not like you look at the questions Biden gets in these fucking briefings. They're like, uh, Mr. Biden, don't you regret everything? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, actually, no, I'm proud of my record. And th- this was more like, hey, I actually am concerned about this. Help me understand, you know? And he gave him enough rope to hang himself. Well, it's also the art of- Unlike my it, pants. The inter- <laughs> of course. <laughs> the interviewers uh. that have always gotten Trump or have done the best job are the ones who throw away the rest of the questions, stay on the one topic, and when they dodge, you just keep going back to it and you go back to it, you go back to it. Doesn't matter if you had a bunch of other topics. Who cares? You got them dead to rights on this one thing. Ex- Keep at it. Extraordinary Make interview. news. Way Make to go, Donald yeah. Swan. Way to go. Uh, but yeah, anyway, anyway, Democrats, that's what Mitch McConnell does when you try to, and <laughs> you try to ask him about like, political appearances. He's like, I don't fucking care. I'm trying to win. Swan also asked him at one point, like, uh, you know, will you be holding, if the Republicans take the Senate and there's another Supreme Court opening and Joe Biden's president, will you hold the hearing? And McConnell goes, I won't be answering that question. And Swan's like, what do you mean you won't be? He goes, I won't be answering that question. Next. <laughs> That's it. His, Meanwhile, his like contempt the- for the press and for voters, it's just, it, it's endless. It's boundless contempt for all Bottomless. Of and I just think like Democrats in a room somewhere being like, wait, if we say it just the right way, we'll have the, legitimacy. Oh no, the appearance of politics. We can't allow The one six committee might be tainted by politics. It's fucking run by Liz Cheney. What are you doing? <laughs> If we get the words exactly right, <laughs> we just, just we'll sneak it through and the Fox News won't see it. They anyway, won't notice it. Send the fucking referral, people. Send the referral. Uh, All right. When we come back, we will talk to The Atlantic's Mark Leibovich about his new book. Thank you for your servitude. Thank you for your servitude. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. 
A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. All right. Since we're back in our nation's capital for the first time in a few years, we thought we'd find out what's been going on from the man who quite literally wrote the book on Washington, D.C. He's the doyen of this town. <laughs> the eminence Greece of the gridiron. The New York Times bestseller, This Town. He has a new book coming out this July about D.C.'s Trump years called Thank You for Your Servitude and a new job writing for The Atlantic. Welcome back to the pod, Mark Leibovich. Thank you for having me, guys. I, I'm uniquely positioned to tell you exactly what's been going on in Washington since I've been working from home like every single other person in Washington for the last uh, two plus years. No, I, I'm out. But you've been on I, Zooms I, with everyone. No, I'm totally ready to Zoom with everyone. No, I, I know. You have everything. your weekly Zoom with Tammy Haddad. We do. We, we, we get together. It's a private thing, like kind of with the cousins and everything. <laughs> yeah. So you wrote this town in Obama's second term about how greedy and incestuous Washington had become. What changed during the Trump years? Well, in, in retrospect, uh, this town sort of reads like a comedy of manners, right? I mm. mean, isn't it uh, funny that so-and-so, this Democrat and this Republican are lobbying together after leaving the Senate and people go to parties and stuff? Um, you know, Donald Trump campaigned on draining the swamp, and uh, this is sort of a book about well, first of all, I think this town, I guess if I'm being self-congratulatory in some way or, or whatever, I mean, I think this town was kind of a book about the swamp that people might have run against. I don't know if it was Trump or whoever, but uh, Donald Trump perfected the swamp. I mean, he turned it into a gold-plated hot tub. I mean, everything that, every swampy thing you would ever imagine about Washington came true um, till the min- millionth extent under Donald Trump. And, you know, Lobbying thrived. I mean, pardons thrived. Uh, cronyism thrived. I mean, anything you could imagine happened under the Trump banner. This town was, as you said, it was like a comedy of manners. Yeah. About how people contort themselves to get in the good graces of powerful people. But then a lot of those same kind of games were played over the last five years. But these are contortions over issues like sabotaging our elections, uh, breaking the law, abject corruption. Were you surprised by how easily certain people were able to adapt to this new reality by playing the same kind of DC games? Yes. I mean, look, this was, I mean, this time was a much more bipartisan book. There was a pox on both your houses vibe to it. Um, The media being one of the houses, I mean, everyone kind of got it. And the comedy of manners was, you know, maybe a little gentle in retrospect, uh, maybe a little harsh in retrospect. Um, You know, I tried to hit the right balance. I didn't always succeed. But, But essentially, it was about the singular kind of bipartisan feudal culture of Washington, D.C. This is a much more you know, frankly, Republican book, because the people who allowed Donald Trump to happen, Donald Trump to get elected, Donald Trump to thrive, Donald Trump to be rehabilitated over and over and over again, and continue to be, you know, the most potent force in the Republican Party are largely Republicans. Um, They're Kevin McCarthy, they're Lindsey Graham, they're, you know, Ron DeSantis, they're Fox News. And 
This is the view from the Trump Hotel. This is not, I'm not trying to out Bob Woodward or out Maggie Haberman, um, you know, these great journalists on, on White House intrigue, or I'm not trying to out psychoanalyze Trump any more than, you know, the psychoanalysts who wrote cover stories for all kinds of magazines about that. Um, I write about the culture of enablement, if you'd call it that, within the Republican Party that you know, came to define not only the party, but came to de- define a big part of Washington and prop up a very dangerous presidency. Of all the Republicans who ultimately bent the knee to Donald Trump, who surprised you the most? <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, it was it was a large, it was a lot of people. I mean, first of all, start with the people who ran against him. Okay. Yeah. I mean, remember some of the, the absolutely catastrophic rhetoric that Lindsey Graham, that Marco Rubio, that Ted Cruz... Um, Chris Christie even, I mean, less so, but they all hurled at him. I mean, these were things where, I mean, there was a moment, I think maybe in March or April where Cruz, Rubio, Trump, and Kasich were left and they were on the debate stage and it was high dungeon. It was, you are the most corrupt person I have ever seen, Donald Trump. I mean, the the nuclear codes, you are the most morally hideous person. I mean, like, like hyperbole that... That is so far beyond what you hear, even in a vicious debate that we are used to. And then the last question, I don't remember who the moderator was. It might have been Chris Wallace said, well, having heard what we've heard tonight, will you all support the nominee of the Republican Party, even if it is Donald Trump? Raise your hand. And then Rubio, Kasich, Cruz, immediately. Trump, I I don't think, I think Trump, the question didn't apply to Trump because he is Trump. Um, but essentially it was like, oh, okay. Now, yes, this might sound a little different. This might sound a little more extreme, but we're basically playing the same game. Whether Trump cares or not, like they need to like think about their viability once Trump loses in 2016, which they all fully expect will happen. They might run a run again. Uh, you know, Rubio has announced that he's done with the Senate. He's sick of it. He's done with it. Uh, he drops out. He's dispirited. He is almost in tears that he lowered himself to making dick jokes about the president. And that's why he's leaving the Senate. And like, there are all these people as well he's blind quotes with a staff or thing i've never seen him more miserable in his life he can't wait to leave and you know we know how the story ends but it didn't it didn't just happen in 16 either it happened after the insurrection like you spent some time with um with kevin mccarthy for uh i think a times piece in in april of 21 um what do you make of that guy <laughs> What's going on with Kevin, Kevin McCarthy? Kevin McCarthy wants to be Speaker of the House. That's it, right? That's just all. That he- is the Holy Grail. Um, and look, it's you know, it's it's as this town as it gets. Like, a person wants a job, willing to do whatever it takes to get it. Um, the 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 central dynamic underwriting this entire book is people who know better, who get the joke, who speak one way in private about Donald Trump, who then go on stage or speak publicly or do press conferences about how Donald Trump is the most powerful figure and we revere him and he's the best president ever and he should go on Mount Rushmore and he should win a Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, you know, these are things that President Donald Trump literally cared about and people literally went out and said. And Lindsey Graham, who, you know, is is a central figure in this book and in these years, I think, from a psychological standpoint, from a political standpoint, from a policy standpoint, from a character standpoint right who would like you know literally weeping his way through john mccain's memorial services and then is on the golf course with donald trump you know within weeks of of this um you know he is 
he will go on the golf course and he knew all of Trump's erogenous zones. He'd say, thank God for reversing Barack Obama's terrible tragedy. And, you know, and then he told me. Just say this to Trump like privately. Yeah, but then he'd tell me, he'd say, you got to be deft about this. And this is on the record. He'd say, you know, Obama drives him crazy. And so you can't praise him too much because then he'll lose respect for you. And, you know, it was, there was an interview I did with him that parts of this were in the Times Magazine in, I guess, 2018, 2019, but this was a fuller readout of it in which he, um, yeah, I mean, he basically just sat down and told me how he was playing the game. I mean, he was in South Carolina one day giving a speech um, to a Republican club somewhere around Greenville, and he was saying, you know, it was after the Kavanaugh thing, he said, they, they hate us. They hate our way of life. They hate you. They hate us. And then literally the next day was up in Washington. I think it was either around the State of the Union or Trump was doing some joint session speech and and you know he was he knew that i got the joke he knew that his colleagues got the joke he knew that the people in the hallways got the joke and this book is about the joke this book is about the space between what republicans in washington by and large in washington there are some elsewhere what how they know better and what they do and what they were willing to do and what they didn't do it's interesting i think I think certainly at the beginning of the Trump era, there was more of a conversation about character. Who would show character in this moment? I think it's actually mattered less because so few did. And now the conversation has been more about how do we change the incentives to make all of these craven and despicable and ambitious people act in a more civilized way. But I actually do want to ask you about character because you have spent so much time with these people Mm -hmm. on the spectrum of complicity, whatever it might be. And if you would have said to, to us... Six, seven years ago, hey, I got a list of the only people that are going to stand up against fascism in America. It's Liz Cheney, Bill Crystal, and Mitt Romney. I'd be like, what? That's, that's a surprising group of people. Mm-hmm. I do think we spend a little bit too much time psychologizing some of these people, mm-hmm. but I am still interested in what made certain people refuse to go along and certain people not. And I'm curious what you've found. I, I, okay. First of all, everyone you just mentioned, Crystal, not really, but but certainly Liz, Cheney, and Mitt Romney um, were big parts of the book. I mean, I talked to them, spent a fair amount of time with both of them. And, you know, on the question of character, um, one thing the two of them have in common, and then another group like John McCain, um, Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, uh, they all have family legacies. Liz's dad, you know, Liz's dad, say what you will about Dick Cheney. I mean, he's a historian. Liz is a historian. She worked in the Middle East in developing democracies. Mitt Romney's father was, you know, a a great personal cost to his political career. A a real maverick Republican in the 60s when that was really hard around Vietnam, around civil rights. Um, You know, Mitt Romney, his career he thought ended in 2012 as like the flipping Mormon, as he said in that, in that Netflix documentary about himself as someone who, you know, flip flopped, who just was seen as opportunistic and his Senate career gave him a chance to rewrite that ending a little bit. And, you know, I say what you will about Mitt Romney. I mean, he stood on principle. I think he made a difference. Um, you know, uh, Larry Hogan's father was also a maverick Republican during Watergate. He was the first Republican to vote against, to basically come out against Vietnam on that committee, um, and and he lost his election. So there were a bunch. I mean, there were, but family, you know, John McCain's family legacy, I and mean, he's talked all of it. So I think that's one thing they have in common. Combat veterans like Adam Kinzinger, that's another 
There's a bit of a redemption story to all of them, too. Absolutely. Maybe Liz Cheney thinking about her father, Mitt Romney thinking about his legacy after the 2012 election. There might be a little bit of that, too. Yeah, there's there's something like kind of upsetting about that as well, right? Because there's something about having the power of a name already behind you to give you the ability to tell the truth. And some of these people that are just coming up being afraid to be squashed by the Trump machine. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, Congressman Raskin made that point last week when he was actually interviewing Liz Cheney. I, th- there was some kind of discussion around the the one six committee, and he asked. He said, "You know, he said it's easy for you. You have, you know, you have a name, you have a legacy, you have money. Presumably, you can do this. You know, but like Mister Backbencher from Ohio, he can't do it. He can. He just has to like go along in order to keep his job and what have you. Um, you know, maybe there's something to that. I mean, I, I." I I am one of these people who believes that that it's never too late to show character. I, I believe, you know, it, it drives me nuts when you know liberals say, "Oh, how can you even talk about Liz Cheney after what happened in Iraq?" You know, um, you know, Dick Cheney, you know, is a war criminal. You know, they go to the sort of the circa twenty. Well, there's also there's like a there's a snide like points. liberals' new favorite hero, Liz Cheney. I'm like, Liz Cheney's not anyone's new favorite fucking hero. She just did something right. That's I'll, all I'll, you could say. You could like, I disagree with a ton of Liz Cheney's policies. Still, just, even though she's not, did, he's not afraid to say it. <laughs> not afraid to say it. <laughs> even, though, even though she did the right thing, I, still I don't think like, we agree on anything. I don't <laughs> think she's a, like. I don't. Yeah. She doesn't need to be my fucking hero. She just did the right thing. Well, it's also just sort of like I'm not looking for Republicans to be Democrats. I'm really not looking them to do anything at all. But if there are a few who are able to see and be honest about what we're seeing, there's something to be learned from the fact that these people were able to reject or repel the forces, the pressures that are on all of these Republicans to which Paul Ryan fell to, to which Kevin McCarthy is always succumbing. It's it's it is. I think it would matter more if more of them were able to stand up. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is I mean, someone's made this point when people have made this point repeatedly. I mean, is is Donald Trump still so viable within the Republican Party, not to mention like a kingmaker within the Republican Party, because so many putative leaders in the party just waved the white flag and didn't bothers but you know after 2016 didn't bother to even you know c- combat him at all or is you know is it it's a chicken and egg question right um but i mean liz cheney has lost i mean you know she's a pariah in that party i mean i went out and went to wyoming i guess last summer maybe a summer ago i mean she her security detail i mean remember the secure undisclosed location that dick cheney used to hang out in it was kind of a joke it's yeah. like you know, after 9 11 you just don't know where he is uh she pretty close to has a secure undisclosed location out when she's in Wyoming. Like she was home for a week. It was a district visit. Her public appearances were not publicized. Her secure undisclosed location when I visited with her was in the Dick Cheney Federal Building in Casper. And to get in there was like getting into a prison. I mean, it was like there were lined, I mean, checkpoints and metal detectors and pat downs and people lining the hallways. Um, And, you know, she's you know, threats are through the roof on her. I mean, her security team is is large. I mean, it's she has. I mean, it's stunning what's happened to someone like that. But also, I mean, look, I I will always be inspired by character. Um, you know, no matter what the background is, and and you know, even if it's the bare minimum, like look, Mike Pence did the bare minimum. Bare it's minimum, not nothing. Yeah. 
Yeah, Bill Barr maybe did the bare minimum. Brad Raff. I mean, whatever. We we talked about this earlier. Yeah. I mean, I put Raffensperger in a different different category. Yeah, and Bill Barr put the I don't yeah, even I the barest. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. He was he was pretty ready to go along right at the end. There. Well, right. ba- well, Bill Barr. Bill Barr goes into the example of you don't get points for removing a nail you put into the side of the barn. You know. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's all. Yeah. It's all there. But look, I mean. Character matters. I mean, I, I think that I think we're in agreement yeah. on this, and and this is a dereliction of character across the board. Uh, here's a here's a non-Trump Republican question that's really important. Do you think it was more annoying to get COVID from the gridiron or to be at the gridiron? I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, I didn't do either. <laughs> I did not. I mean, I have. I didn't go to. Well, there, I didn't go to the gridiron. Therefore, I could sort of hesitated. COVID. Did, yeah. No, I did not. Well, he's he realized almost, he's, although, been this, he's been in the the studio with us. Well, in I will say, space for, you know, for an hour now. <laughs> I recently, I recently left the New York Times after 16 years, and um, you know, we were banned from these dinners. Like there was Dean Baquet said, you know, oh, yeah. no more course. And you guys are you, you guys know, are above that. You're, you're, we're total. Well, your Twitter, I, your Twitter policies, I, and you're not a. You're yeah. not attending. I the will gridiron. say this: I agreed with that policy. I loved not going to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. I would go to after parties. Yeah, we love seeing it at the after parties. No, the after parties were great. <laughs> they were. Yeah, no, we were. And, and also in Best fairness, party. you know, in the Correspondents' Dinners I would go to before, I got a lot of work done. Like you know, you meet people, you see people you wouldn't see otherwise. Blah blah blah. Um, but I didn't go to the Gridiron. Um, I guess technically I could have, but I'm not member of the i've never been to the great iron i haven't either it's so because right. i'm so pure and above it all i've always been above it all you know this. of course do you regret your attacks on the white house correspondents <laughs> dinner given how uh terrible the situation became for the country after it was canceled <laughs> you know in retrospect i do maybe, think about it maybe if donald trump could have you know joked with the media and like we could have all like raised a toast to the first amendment everything would have been better it's That's worth right. thinking about because you know the, the toast actually i guess the formal toast at the correspondence dinner is Ladies and gentlemen, let's raise a glass to the President of the United States. And we did. And it was like such a reverential moment. It always sucked. Uh, last, last question. What are you going to be writing about at the Atlantic? It's been, I know you started April 1st. It's uh, yeah. April 11th. I've been waiting for a Leibovich piece. Uh, it, it'll be, it won't be long. I mean, I have, I've been onboarding. I've been signing up for things. I've been learning policies and everything. We, you know, we're sort of. How's the health plan? Back to, uh, I picked one today. Um, I don't know yet. Okay. I guess I'll let you know. No, okay. I'm going to be doing covering politics. I'm going to be covering some sports, some Hollywood. Um, I love the magazine. I missed magazine writing. Um, you know, love the New York Times, but decided I needed a change, and here I am. And the book is uh, "Thank You for Your Servitude," and it's out July 1st, I believe. It's uh, well, it's it's available for pre-order now on Amazon. Thank Go you for it. your servitude. It is the subtitle is Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Um, you, you want know, to goose the pre-sales with it? You want to give, give us one little fact, something that hasn't been out there yet? Some little bit of news? You want to goose these numbers? You want to get this thing off the charts? No, it's just an awesome romp of a something, book. No, I'm not going to do the, the top thing. of playbook, maybe? Uh, give us a little, give us a little something, 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 huh? There something is between Nancy uh... Pelosi and, uh, no. Um, <laughs> let's see. Um, no, I'm not going to play that game. I'm Damn above it. it. No, it's oh, a great okay. book. If you like this town, you'll like this, and it's Nothing? It's even Seems like you were close. One little What? One little, just give us a little nugget. Come up with Give us a little punch bowl. Come on. Just put a little, put a little, put a little juice in our punch bowl. A little juice in your punch bowl. I, you know, come on. No, I'm not playing this game. I, I could. Let's see. There is a. No, I'm not. I, I, you talked I, to Paul Ryan. I did. I talked to Paul Ryan quite a bit. Actually, what do you say? What? You have to what, say say? what do you say? There was a thing about Paul Ryan was talking about, like watching January sixth um, from home and just bursting into tears and just like seeing his old security detail like there and. 
like not knowing what to do. Like, how did this happen? I didn't see it coming. And, you know, he was, he was, you know, it was very a human moment, him describing this. Um, and, you know, I did sort of wonder, like, could, did he wish he could have done more? I mean, look, he... And then he, he, and then the next day he went to that Fox News board meeting. Well, said, that was the other thing. Proceed. I mean, he, you could... <laughs> the Fox, I vote I. The Fox News thing... <laughs> On this whole thing. ...was, like, that. that's the kind of lurking thing. Look, look Paul Ryan's a complicated guy. He... he, yeah, he I quit. know he'd like to think he is. Yeah. Well, no, I, I think that Paul Ryan... He left. He is not Kevin McCarthy. Whatever, I mean, maybe it's relative. I, no, it's true. Yeah, he did. Uh, I, I said, when he was leaving, I remember Pfeiffer and I talked about this. I was like, Paul Ryan's going to leave. And as much as we dislike Paul Ryan, he's going to be replaced by someone who's even worse than Paul Ryan. And sure enough. Oh, you sure think enough. McCarthy's bad. <laughs> yeah, wait a minute. I mean, I'm serious. Yeah, I he's, mean, not gonna, he's not going to last long either. <laughs> well, will he get to <laughs> be, be speaker? speaker. Yeah, no, well, I mean, I have a who was it? There was another Republican. I forgot who it is, but he's named in the book. He said... I think he actually will be Speaker of the House, and it's going to be the most miserable existence you can imagine. Ramy might last a year. Um, that horror should come to pass. It yeah, it seems like almost like a curse by like a witch. Like you will be Speaker of the House. Can you imagine being the Speaker of the House? I mean, first of all, the expectation level. I mean, you know, there, he's expected to win by however many now. But um, yeah, it doesn't look like a fun job, but he wants the job, and he could probably get the Bakersfield Airport named after him if he gets to be speaker. I mean, Bill Bill Thomas go. has a terminal named after him. That's it. Uh, that's, anyway, Bakersfield. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Baker. It's all about Bakersfield. The book is "Thank You for Your Servitude." Uh, go pre-order it right now. Mark Leibovich, thanks for joining Pod Save America. Thank you guys. You guys are awesome. We'll uh, we'll talk to y'all. Uh, we have our show Thursday night. At the anthem, so there'll be no Thursday pod with Dan and I. There'll be the Thursday night show, and that'll be out Friday. And uh, we'll talk to y'all then. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner Bernstein. Our producer is Haley Muse, and Olivia Martinez is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineer the show. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz. Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montu. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it, Mm -hmm. more time for you. I, uh, you know, because we've been doing what a weekday. Mm -hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So, uh, what do you spend time doing in therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I added therapy back to another time because uh, it turns out talking that's going to make the jokes better. Well, it's only going to make things better for the team. (laughs) (laughs) If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA.